Hello everyone. In today's world, the most scarcest resource any individual has is attention. If you are listening to this podcast, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for investing your attention here. I've been going down the crypto rabbit hole for several months now and wanted to share some valuable information with the rest of the community and this podcast is a humble attempt to do so. The following is a conversation with the Functionland co-founders Kevan, Esan and Kate. Functionland team have been working on a product called Box which is a private tailless cloud storage alternative that has been in the works for the last several months. Their Indiegogo campaign is closing soon and you can check out their product in the links given below in the description. Functionland is a cloud alternative ecosystem that is being built from scratch. and includes incentives designed to all players of the ecosystem owners of the box developers and users functionland rewards the owners of the box and the open source developers in their native token pula they are taking on cloud giants and are empowering everyone to be part of this network via their open source approach with the right incentive design this idea of taking on the cloud giants is very exciting and I explore my curiosity with the team in this episode please join and tinker along with me please note that this conversation is strictly for information purposes only and do not contain any financial advice this episode of the curious tinkerer is brought to you by friends at bear.tax bear.tax compiles all your crypto transactions and makes it easy for you to file your taxes check out bear.tax that is b e a r t a x all right let's get cracking so thank you kate kevan uh is and joining us uh, from functional land thank you so much uh, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you guys here so uh, why don't we give, give us an intro introduction about yourself and what functional land does and then maybe once we do have that we can dive deeper into the questions yeah sure so i'm ehsan i i studied electrical engineering graduated from university of colorado and then got into like web development and application development world like uh, about 10 15 years ago since then i've i've been doing like open source work uh, plus working in like some some companies like big big retail companies and uh, like i uh, like we started a project called resume ai resume with kate and kevan which was supposed to like uh, basically uh, standardize the resume formats for ai processing like something that linkedin is doing in the background and that's how we met and we pivoted that project to to something bigger which created functionland Hi, Nanda. So my name is Kevan. Uh, I've studied artificial intelligence in Southampton, UK, uh, back in 2012. Uh, I graduated and moved to Hong Kong and worked on AGI with Ben Gortzel for a couple of years. And ever since, I've been in open source. Uh, and uh, as Essa mentioned, we met uh, we met each other in another project here in Toronto, and we got together and. That's how function that started. <laughs> That's nice. 
yeah, so hi, Nanda. I hope you can hear me since we launched this podcast, the band that sprung up next to me, I think. <laughs> so yeah, so my background, I studied at the University of Guelph and Michigan State University in the US, and I studied agronomy um, and renewable fuels, but often um, a big data component often came up, right? And so then um, I started to work with startups and try and help academics spin out their intellectual property, and I helped start um, help startups to raise money and get like capital and grow their business. And then I landed up meeting Kayvon and Essan, uh, sorry, Kayvon and another founder at the time who were working on a company called Assister AI. And it was very cutting edge, natural language processing. Um, so I got really enthusiastic and I actually went to school thanks to Kayvon for AI and started dabbling in that. Um, but yeah, then since then, you know, that other founder of ours has actually joined a very prestigious university here in Canada to further his work in AI. And we've now pivoted to function land where we want to really focus on web three and bring that to um to the masses and i'm sure there will be a very strong ai component for our project down the line so our uh, skills will not be wasted that's for sure so i look after business development and partnerships here at function land and so i uh, i think i probably have the best job because i get to talk to all the different blockchain foundations and the devs and the customers and just try to figure out the strategy and how we're really going to take it from like the developers that we started out with you know how are we going to standardize your resumes to how are we going to help all these javascript and front-end developers make that convergence and bridge them to web three so they can still use those skills and start making money and play in this ecosystem okay great thanks that's great that's great to have you have you guys actually on the show here thank you everyone for joining uh so let's dive a bit more into functional land so what does functional land do what is your mission what are you trying to achieve with functional land and the product box which you recently launched so let's talk a bit more about what your mission is and what you're trying to achieve Sure. So uh, with Function Land, our mission is to deliver on the promises of Web3. So the idea of Web3 has been based off of a series of foundational assumptions uh, that have not been delivered to date. Uh, and hence, the, uh, there's not, we don't see that paradigm shift that was promised yet out in the world. So Function Land's... Uh, Set, is set out to do that, to deliver on those promises. The number one promise being actual decentralization. And this is something that we still don't see. Like uh, we see that uh, Bitcoin is banned in China last July. And for like a couple of weeks, 50% of uh, Bitcoin's hash rate is dropped. And the reason is that actual decentralization due to unforeseen circumstances haven't, haven't happened, right? So, I mean, at the early days of Bitcoin, it was people were mining Bitcoin on their laptops, like including the creators. But down the road with the advent of like specific mining rigs, that became something that only a select group could do. And that became centralized in, in, in the next step. So. Uh, what we pursue with Function Land specifically, first and foremost, is actual decentralization. And by that, we mean people that you see in the streets being node operators in, in blockchain. And, and, and in doing so, we want to deliver utility, like actual day-to-day -day utility to people. And that utility is uh, cloud services and applications. So what we see in the blockchain space is an explosion of DeFi apps. But what we don't see is uh, the equivalent of everyday apps 
things that you like normal people use on their phones, like day-to-day -day allocate most of their time to those apps. People don't go to exchanges most of the, unless, I mean, they're, they're crypto nerds. But <laughs> normal people go to review their photos and memories. They go to social networks and the streaming services. So Box will be the infrastructure for those apps, a infrastructure that you own physically. Okay. And just want to see, like, to mention the way it started was exactly like... Uh, uh, about cloud like so so like we were seeing these uh, services that are launched by by these central like cloud providers like like google photos google drive and they had the power to change their terms their pricing like they, they had the control over our data like like uh, actually when, when google photo they they removed the free tier from their application uh, like me and Kevin were, was, were very frustrated because we had years of photos on that application. And now like, at, like, uh, like uh, without any prior notice, we had to pay for the same service that was marketed for free. Uh, like uh, it, 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 was, it was really frustrating. And that was where the start of idea came that, okay, like we need to decentralize things. And Web3 was, was a natural solution to it. But as Kevin mentioned, it's not really decentralized. It, it hasn't yet delivered the promise. And yeah. that's where we, we thought of this box that you see in my background. Yeah. <laughs> I read yeah, that. Amanda, if I may add, so yeah. our, um, you asked what our mission was, right? So we like to say it's a piece of blockchain on your desk. And our, our mission is to really get um, a node in every home. And then to Essence's point about, you know, the photos and everything like that aside from the price and everything like that there's this idea of privacy you know so we like to also say trust where your data is and if you can physically see that hardware on your desk that node that belongs to you you know we think that's a really exciting mission yeah yeah that, that's great i, I read that article uh yeah, okay, where you mentioned about the google photos actually becoming uh chargeable and then you're frustrated and so you had to develop an open source software and then now what you are what you have with box is like uh infrastructure for that software to run and you're also opening up that platform for other open source developers to build applications on top of the infrastructure that you are providing and that anyone can purchase and be part of the community right so that's that's essentially what you're doing and in a sense this is a complete paradigm shift right so there are cloud providers like aws azure and gcp who are uh you know getting the data so you you log into their site you use the services which are again developed by developers they're in-house developers you use those services and then you pay for a corporate so the corporate actually acts as a middleman here uh whereas what you're trying to push forward is like you have the base layer which is the infrastructure the box uh storage layer that you're providing and the compute layer on top of it and then you are basically saying instead of a corporate or a company standing in between, it will be this network where users and the developers are actually bridged through this network, right? So this is this is what I understood from whatever information is available about Functional Land. Is this a fair understanding of how uh, Functional Land is actually put forward to the world? Yeah, and Nanda, I'll add. So sometimes when we pitch to you know investors or whomever, we explain how we are different from others, right? So sometimes we talk about how we're different from the cloud and web two. And sometimes we say how we're different from network attached storage or like external hard drives that we know and use today. So one of our advisors, Andy Lark, had this brilliant epiphany early on to call it blockchain attached storage. 
So that's also something that we do refer to. Um, I don't want to confuse, confuse people in that not everything is um, automatically or necessarily stored to the blockchain, but it is this blockchain attached storage that gives you that option. So that's another way of thinking of it as well. Yeah, that sounds good. And Nanda, like, as you mentioned, it's, it's, it's like, one of the goals of this ecosystem uh, of this box is not just to store users' data; it's to create that full ecosystem for both. Like basically, we don't call them users; it's owners, box owners, and developers. So, so that like it it, it creates a self-sustainable ecosystem that thrives by itself. Like like it doesn't require a company to to like us as a company to just create applications for it. Like other developers open source developers can jump on this ecosystem, create applications for it. And, you know, when we have a thousand developers working on applications, it would like be really like great applications which can compete with, with the apps that we now see, because that's also one of the other questions that we receive a lot that, how do you think open source can compete with, with closed source applications? And the thing is like the keyword here is monetization. Like if open source is monetized in, in a good way, then those great developers who are creating those closed source applications can, can work on their own, can create great applications. Those open source creators can maintain their applications and like basically make it make it like compete with, with the uh, applications that we see, like like photos. Yeah, I think that uh, there was an article written by Chris Dixon, if I'm not wrong, uh, where in the long enough time frame, open source actually always wins over closed systems like how Linux has actually taken over the world where like close to 76% or uh, whatever of the <laughs> software is run on Linux systems. So I, I, I get that part where like, you know, in the long enough time frame, open source will actually win, win over the closed systems. But my question is mostly around like how, th there are a few questions, follow-up questions that uh, are coming up based on what you shared, uh, Isan. So you mentioned it's an ecosystem, like a network that you're developing and you don't want like function land or a company or you guys to be gatekeeper for this network right so how do you how do you plan to actually separate it how because that's something that would be key for the community to understand like where the line actually gets drawn uh when you say like you know you are actually you are part of the ecosystem you're not owner of the ecosystem if you see what i mean yeah and so, I mean, the most important thing in realizing that is cutting the middleman. There shouldn't be a middleman between the creator of the content and the consumer of that content. And that's what happens in the Fuller Network. So in the Fuller Network, uh, the creator directly puts it for people to download and is compensated by downloads. You can think of it as very much like BitTorrent, but this time it's tokenized BitTorrent that pays both the person who's seeding the content and the person who created the content. So that's, that's the most important aspect of it. First is that there's no middleman. It's, it's direct access from the creator to the consumer. And the other one is uh, that create, make, making this will work, right? Making, making it that sustainable is, is the keyword there. And our insight there was that there is this very cool aspect in blockchain called mining, where you are a node operator in, in, in specific blockchains, you can mine tokens. So why don't we pair that mining with compensation for creators? 
instead of uh, making some people rich, make the creators rich, like not, not rich, just pay them for the uh, content that they bring into the network and directly link that as, as opposed to having, again, a middleman being in control of, no, this is how you get paid, right? I mean, in the traditional Web2 world, that's what it is. Like, think of the streaming services of the world. What they do is they contract, essentially, independent uh, filmmakers. And then they do, they, they, they just uh, buy the IP rights for it, essentially, for a fraction of what they will end up making and distributing that content. So that's, that's really what's happening to the big tech. They are becoming the brokers, not, 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 nothing more. Not, I mean, in every, big, every Web2 platform, that's the case, that they, they have become the broker and not necessarily the innovators, right? So by, by, by passing that round trip, we hope that this will induce innovation to, to, to the end user application ecosystem. And we can see that like uh, on the subject of open source. Um, yes, open source hasn't uh, completely uh, taken over the user end user application space. So, when you go to App Store or Google Play Store, the apps that you see there, they're mostly closed source. But we don't see that same thing on the server-side applications or on DevTool applications. There we see that it's completely ran, the show is ran by open source. And the reason is that if, if you want to like have an end-user application, you need to rent out servers from providers. And as your users grow, your monthly fee grows and you have to impose it on your end user. So in, in order to impose that cost on your end user, first thing that you're doing is you close source your app and then you introduce ads and subscriptions. So with this new paradigm of having your own server, that's, that problem is completely gone. So you, 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 you again can start things that you do in DevTools space and server space now for and user application space. That makes sense. Yeah, that's a, that's really great. And I just want to add in two cents from like a non-technical person. Sometimes people say, well, open source, you know, K1's point, it sounds obscure, it sounds technical, people sort of start thinking about it. But those applications we use every day are built on open source on the backs of those people. So they could be, you know, a developer in the middle of Brazil somewhere who built something that Facebook's you know, using or whomever. So it's very important when you actually go from app to app to app, sometimes you see a lot of similarity in how they look, right? And it's um, they're using those same open tool, open source tools that were developed by someone. And so it's very key here because I think for the first time ever, we've come up with a, mechan mechan like a mechanism, yes, for compensating these developers where they are in the world. And when you challenge people today, how do you compensate those people today that helps you build this tool that your app is built upon? And maybe they do um, donations or you know things like this or philanthropy, but that's not actually going to get into the pockets of those developers where they are. So I like this idea of in situ, you know, compensation, sustainable in situ compensation. Okay, thanks. And uh, one thing that I want to add is to make sure that fun like functional land doesn't step like this ecosystem basically doesn't step in the same path of like Google's or like those central companies. Uh, the, the association that oversees the whole ecosystem is a DAO, like a decentralized organization, uh, which, 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 which name is a Fula Governance Association. So that ensures that 
no central authority has the power at to at any time like basically play with 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 the, with the ecosystem yeah that makes sense and and uh, i went through the draft uh, white paper something bakisan that you shared with me uh, and the, are these things being outlined or is the white paper published now um, <laughs> do we have the final version now sorry i didn't check it recently though but do we have a white paper that details the tokenomics of the system of the network um, and could you share a bit more about the tokenomics if that's okay um, uh, with the community on how you plan to actually reward the owners of the box uh, and the developers as well so how will so they are being rewarded by fuller tokens right so that's that's my understanding so how are they rewarded is it based on the number of users that use the apps or is it based on because there is also going to be a computation cost or storage cost associated with it which is what fula actually which is what the users actually get paid for using fula so how does that work between the owners of the box system and the uh, app developers Um, Nanda, if you allow screen sharing, maybe it would be good to like just show yep. it while we talk, so we can. Right now, I cannot hey, share screen. I'm not sure what you want to share. No surprise, but if not, also I simulate. It would be really great to discuss in our answer. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, 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 those resources all can work. Uh, Nanda, can you in, in, on your end allow screen share because I think you're the host. Yes. Uh, yeah. And now share screen three. Sure. So Nanda, this is the latest uh, white paper. You can find it if you go to our website, ethics.bad, and it's right here. You click white paper, and there it is. So uh, in, in here, we discuss uh, all the aspects of the Fula network and everything. And then here we have a pollute to the uh, tokenomics uh, and how exactly your question, how uh, it works in terms of compensation for each party involved. And like right off the bat, we emphasize that this is still uh, work in progress. So as we are implementing pieces of the actual tokenomics in the testnet, so testnet is going to go live. If everything goes to the plan, uh, end of Q2 this year, so like in three months, hopefully, less. Um, but uh, we, we have the general groundwork laid out. Like we have some uh, parameters and how compensation works. And uh, these are, I mean, our first uh, straw man proposals. Again, these are to be checked in the actual test net and see if these numbers work. But the, uh, general allocation makes, uh, like the allocation of each token for compensation will be a composition of these three factors here, right? So currently what we're saying is 25% uh, of, say, say you want to download an app and that one app is worth one FULA token, right? So 25% of that FULA will go to the content creator the person who've created that, that content. So that's direct. So that's not a upfront payment that's done and it's a recurring source of revenue. So as, as long as people are downloading your work, 
you get 25% feed per retailer, right? Then again, another 25% for content curators. So these are people, you remember uh, the BitTorrent example. So these are people who keep seeding your content, so making it available out in the world. Um, then this is really important. 40% uh, of that one Fula token goes to upstream developers of your, of your project. So say you've created an app and you've, uh, you, you've used a bunch of libraries in creating your app, right? And this is a common thing that, theme that you see in, in open source. When you install dependencies, other people's software to build your own software, you see messages like, core JS developer is looking for a job, please suggest positions that, that might help me continue sustaining core JS, right? So here by design, 40% uh, of that goes to upstream developers. So these are hundreds of packages, hundreds of open source packages that help people create an end user app, right? And they go unnoticed in the current model. But here they are compensated. That's the biggest portion because there are so many, right? So this can be one person, this can be a few people, but this is like like hundred people getting at least hundred people getting getting compensated, right? Yeah. And then uh, ten so, sorry, Kevin. Can I can I interrupt for a second here? So does that work for even existing packages or only for new repositories that will be created? Uh, probably hosted on GitHub, but that has some way associated with the Fula network, or does it also work for some of the existing uh, libraries that are out there already? It will be working with the existing library. So for each library, so in a JavaScript project, you have this package.json file. So you know by names, you know that the app that Nandas created, for example, has a dependency called React, React the front end, and that's by Facebook. So if Nanda's work with, is to be downloaded, React, meaning Facebook, is being compensated because it's an upstream dependency. Yep. So based on the names on that file, we create wallets corresponding to, to each of these, and then they can come and claim it, claim those wallets and all the tokens that are stored there. I'm just so curious. this is a cool. <laughs> I'm just curious here. So is it just one level up? Or because React will again use many uh, uh, dependencies within within the library, right? So I'm just curious to see like whether it's just one level up from full network or whether it goes through multiple levels. The whole dependency tree. So the whole dependency tree is flattened and then all of them are compensated equally. So yes, React is depending on another package. That package is dependent. They are all flattened and they are all compensated. Okay. That's so it could be hundreds and hundreds of people being compensated by you just downloading an app. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to grasp this. Uh, what you're saying essentially is all the open source packages, components that are being developed for the last 30, 40, 50 years, whatever is hosted and is being used within Fuller Network. And as long as the project owner or the GitHub repository owner has in some way associated that repository with Fuller Network, then they will get compensated for any apps. They don't. They won't even know what apps. But for any apps that basically uses the code or library that they have written. Correct. So these will be their people making it. So if you have a library that's most 
using every app out in the world, you're making a lot of money. So you're, you are very much uh, incentivized to build core, core stuff that are uh, central to all apps, hence the sustainability of the ecosystem. So open source has long been going uncompensated. So this is like proper compensation based on how many, how much traction you're getting, how much impact you're having on the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is brilliant, right? Like, we are not restricting to just full-on network or any new code that is going to be developed in the future. This actually works for any library that has existed in the past, and as long as they have some wallet associated with the with the repository, this would start working, right? And they will start getting right. people. Like, this is this is a dream come true moment for developers who want passive income, right? Like, they can make their code work for them. In, in a Interesting, and that, 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 that was the core idea. So we've been open source developers for long, and we, we saw what, what, what's wrong in that space, like open source not being compensated. And that was the cornerstone of what we built FunctionLand on. We want these open source developers to be compensated continuously because they are creating the internet as we know it. They are the, they are the rightful compensation party of the internet. If, if anyone is to be compensated, is, is, is it, it's the open source developers. Yeah. Yeah, Nanda, I said, you said passive income, right? So what people talk about passive income or universal basic income. And I think sometimes if you are passively mining our token with a box at home, that word applies, I think, or universal basic income, perhaps because your token is accumulating your box that you can now use to spend on dApps. But in my opinion, as a non-developer, I just see it not, it is recurring revenue for hard work that really, really needs to be deserved. So yes, it would be passive in that it's coming to you, but it's, um, you worked, these developers work damn hard and it's about time that they were compensated uh, for what they would deserve, for what they are, should be rewarded for. Ananda, it, it doesn't limit to, to application developers. So a video creator, like, like, like this, this, like, for, for example, right now we are using Netflix, right? So the video creator put, put their video on Netflix, users pay Netflix, and then Netflix distribute those like revenues to the creators. So here the video creator directly distributes the creation to the users and the users use the token to, to pay the, the, the creator of the video directly. So that, that, that's also like, like another group like all creators like app creators or content creators all get compensated yes, yes. i just wanted to add um sorry one more thing is that sometimes obviously investors or people want to understand how will function land make money or how is this a sustainable venture right and um because we do have this hardware component but it after a long after a little while we hope that with our hardware designs being open sourced that other people would run and start to manufacture the hardware but because we have developed these libraries or sd codes or sdks or these protocols that um these other developers can incorporate like you've mentioned we stand to benefit as well so just for people who need to understand where our source of revenue comes from and we are partner co-designer i suppose in each of these apps that would be going forward so, so the way uh, Function Land is actually incentivized to make this network is via the long-term value operation of full or token, right? Because you expect the protocols that you have written to be part of the network. And because it will be a dependency for any applications that are being deployed in the network, that's how uh, 
uh, you know, functional as a company's incentivized. Is that a fair way to say? That's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So Functional Land is Functional Land Inc., the, the company headquartered in Toronto, is not the owner of the token. As I saw mentioned, that's the DAO, FGA, the Governance Association, is the owner of the token. Uh, Functional Land is just like any company that we hope like will emerge like in, in, in the next year. It's just building apps for this ecosystem and being compensated accordingly. It's that that's what Functionland does. That's the business model of the Functionland the company. And for the last component for the longevity of, of the app ecosystem is that ten percent that goes to the network itself. So from one fula that you spent, you you have ten cent that goes to the grants and hackathons program to build the next cool apps that you're gonna see in the world. So it's a completely sustainable model. I mean, these numbers might change slightly, but it's designed to, uh, like in, in the video example that I mentioned, so those don't have upstream dependencies. Obviously a creator might use like stock images and videos, but it will, it will fall on their shoulders to compensate their own dependencies. So they will be making with, with these numbers, 65% from one full token spend, right? And where these tokens come from, they come from the mining rules that people generate by just, um, so if you go to FX data simulation, this is a simulation that was prepared by Lanthade Financial. And this is like, this is just, so this is very preliminary and it just concerns storage. It's not like, doesn't go into the weeds of, weeds of the protocols, but uh, like with these parameters set here, like most importantly, the token value, like this is speculation. This is not financial advice, right? <laughs> but with, with, with all these, uh, the, the tokens value, tokens mined in a year can be as high as this much. And the utility for these is, is first, like they, they can pay back your investment. And also they pay these people, the creators, that's that's the most important thing that we're going for in the full ecosystem. And just one thing to add is mining like on this full ecosystem means the users sharing resources together. So we are like creating that decentralized AWS that you mentioned. And so instead of everyone paying one entity, you people pay each other for, for the services, for, for the CPU, for the storage. I pay my neighbor to back up my files and I back up their files, I, I get paid. So this can be zero net transactions or I can share more, more resources to the pool and I earn more from that pool. And uh, like I, I, I then get to use those earned tokens on other services. Yeah, and this is a brilliant one because the first time I actually heard about this idea was like probably four or five years back, I think 2017 cycle. That's when I got into uh, blockchain and started looking into the use cases of what it can actually deliver. And how do you see competitors in this space? Like um, with, with many people actually trying to uh, create a decentralized infrastructure uh, for cloud, how do you see competitors? Do you, how, how do you see it? <laughs> I'll, I'll just put it there. Just one point that I wanted to mention is a lot of other blockchain technologies, they are differentiating users from node operators, which 
again, doesn't solve that, that uh, like paying problem. Again, users need to pay other like node operators in that ecosystem for their files or for, for the CPU that they use. And that was the main concept that we wanted to, to just remove. Like, like every node operator is an owner, is a user. And that's what, what, like, what, what creates this whole ecosystem and enables it to, to sustainably like, grow. That's, that's nice. And uh, um, a quick question on top of it, actually. So when you say, so can, can someone be part of functional land only if they actually purchase the box or can they be part of it otherwise? Like, so what I see is owners of box who are also users of the ecosystem. And then there are developers and content creators who can basically host apps or host content on the fuller network. Uh, do you really need to own box to be part of this network? That's the question. No. Uh, like you can basically just install that it's it's a free open source repo there like uh, github slash fula anyone can go there do an npm install turn their laptop there they're like a raspberry pi like basically any machine capable of running linux to to a box so they don't need to necessarily purchase this box like this box provided by function land but the box also has other benefits so that then like also that's the kind of like basically the functionality of the hardware as well. Like the, this box that you see is not just, just a, a machine to run the Fula. It, it provides other utilities. Like uh, uh, this, this, this box is a modular box. Like these, these tall things that you see on top of it, we call them towers. And they add, like they diversify the functionalities of the box. Basically, one can add right now, like the towers that are available are a hub tower, a storage tower, and a CPU tower, like compute tower. But later down the road, we are in talk with other partners to uh, diversify the towers, like with GPU towers, with router towers. So you, you replace your modem at home with one of these, these like boxes. But even at this point, what you get with the box is a programmable and custom customizable docking station, meaning all the ports on this machine you can you can customize. Uh, these are compatible framework expansion cards, and you choose what ports you want on 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 the hub tower, and through the application box application you control the connections. So you control which port connects to which port. So this is both like. So it, it, it gives you diversified applications, basically. And also creates a revenue of a, of a revenue stream for hardware developers, like, like any hardware developer, be it a company or like a Raspberry Pi enthusiast, they can build a tower, brand it by their name. Like we, we, we are not like basically claiming any ownership. They can brand it with their own name and give it to the market. Like users can purchase directly from them, put it on their box and a new functionality is born. Yeah, and now to, to your question of, do I need, you absolutely need the hardware? I mean, down the road, really, truly, if you want to join the blockchain world, yes, you need a dedicated node in your home. Like, I mean, not, not even blockchain revolution, like 
it's absurd that if, even if it was Web 2, it's, it's a natural evolution, right? What is, the, what is the ultimate solution for me, for my data to be secure? It is that you own your data. <laughs> you physically should own, you have at your home a store of food that you call fridge, right? Is your data as important that you need a physical thing in your home to keep it? I think the answer is yes, right? Um, so, so yes, ultimately it, it, it is like own your infra, otherwise terms are going to be imposed, right? Yeah. But within Fula Network, there are two, two ways, right? First thing is you don't need our dedicated hardware. So you don't need, as Asa mentioned, you don't need the, this form factor. So anything that runs Linux can be a node in, this, in the Fula Network. It, it's, it's like an a APT install, and then you have it, the whole thing, right? And uh, that, that's the first thing. But even if that's, but, but the reason that we have the specific form factor is for it, that is low power, it's tailor-made for the use case, right? If you do this on your laptop, your laptop is not tailor-made for, for being like on 24 seven, and the CPU there is so high power that it's gonna cost you a lot to do so. But even if you don't want to host it, you can rent from your peers. But this, this time around, it won't be a central organization. So you, you, will, you will rent out from your peers who are box owners in your neighborhood. But still, you, you, you haven't solved the pain problem for yourself until you are a node operator. Yeah. And actually, Kevin brought out a good point, like, like that the fact that in Web3, at some point, people ultimately need a hardware. I think that's true even for the Web2, like right now, like, can I use a, a cloud service without owning a hardware? No, I need to have a smartphone. Uh, so that's also like valid in the Web2 world. Yeah, yeah. I think now people are usually focused on the endpoint. Like you have an endpoint access to the cloud, but rather the other point is always in a centralized place somewhere where you don't know the location. But now you have an option to actually have it at the back of your home and share it with others and also be incentivized to do so uh, because you get rewarded for it. So I think that incentives part was has been missing for, a, for quite some time. And I think that's where blockchain is actually helping us to solve uh, that's in incentivization as well. So that's great to see. Um, Nanda, I just, I wanted to, with that paying problem piece that Kayvon mentioned, I like that quote he said, but you know, I get into um, arguments sometimes on <laughs> social media with cloud people or like B2B enterprise cloud oriented folks. And um, they'll say to me, oh, well, the year, year over year spending on cloud is ramping up, it's growing, you know, and that's how they, um, that's the evidence they use as to the future of the cloud is strong. And so perhaps, you know, maybe they have a point, but to, to cite the year over year spending by companies on cloud, it's probably not the best strategy <laughs> on their part. Yeah, I think this and is actually what model about the pendulum. Uh, again, I can't remember the source of this, where, you know, people actually take a 10 year time span and then look at it and say like the pendulum actually says you need to own a data center everyone has to have a data center and then the pendulum slowly started moving to the cloud no one has to own a data center because you put everything into the cloud and then now the pendulum has slowly started moving again saying like you need to have your own hardware why are you spending so much money on the cloud why don't you have your own thing and get rewarded for it so it's like a pendulum actually moving every 10 to 15 20 years uh, time frame and you know, apart from control, like control over our data, one other problem that owning 
like the data center solves is this duplication of data. Like right now, I probably have my first name, last name, and email, these three, at, at least these three fields, uh, like uh, which, which is kind of data in thousands of cloud services. Like I, I have the same information that I, I put on Netflix, on AWS, on Microsoft, on Google. These are duplicate data that I, I need to put on every new service that I am using. By having like this, by owning this, this uh, uh, like server at home, I just keep those data at one place, like for, for once. And if a, a, a new application comes that require the information, they can it, like it access it from one place. So it doesn't need to be duplicated across multiple servers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Asan, I like this idea of less redundancy and more resiliency. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you should maybe add it as part of your uh, copy in the website. <laughs> yeah, and about the pendulum going back and forth, uh, I, I think the uh, important thing to note is how it's going back and forth, right? Um, and it's the user experience, right? So the, what, what moves this back and forth is the ease of the accessibility to a wider audience for that type of new tech as it comes along, right? So I remember I had a very hard time convincing my mother to use Windows, like uh, Microsoft Windows, because like I, I would get her to sit and, and work with these windows and like, here's the cross, you close it, you double click on this file and, and it's, this is, a, and, and I could never, get her to make that leap in, in progress and she would eventually quit, right? She never became a Windows user. Um, but then came these smartphones and now I'm having a very hard time getting her off Instagram. So it's like natural to her, like, yeah, I, I know how to do this and I know how to like people. I mean, when, when you look at it now, the interactions that she's having with Instagram are even harder than interaction that that she had with had to do with Windows, but the, but but the, but the reason is that that she is like getting into these new interactions and this new form factor is because it satisfies a very urgent need. So she needs to communicate for her with her cousins and like see their faces, right? This is this is a pressing need, right? Like opening a file to type in it wasn't a pressing need back in the day, right? Uh, it's, it's the same with the pendulum today. Like it's, it's becoming a pressing need that, ah, these, these people are ripping me off of my rights, right? Like I don't have privacy. My, my data is being harvest, harvested like 24 seven, right? So it, it will be a pressing need for the, a small group of people at, at, like at the beginning, but then it can bridge with user experience. So if we can bring the same user experience that cloud is providing, that's what they move the pendulum back to own your own infrastructure when the user experience is there, when it's, it doesn't take a PhD for you to do a simple. So if the user experience of taking a picture was like open your MetaMask and allow it to be safe, that's not going to take off. <laughs> that's a great example. <laughs> One thing that, that basically also like probably, probably improves the user experience because like one, 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 one important uh, 
like thing for us for for the users is we we don't want to just mention that it 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 gives you more privacy because for a lot of people, privacy is not a concern at this point. So it needs, as Kayvon mentioned, it needs to give that user experience that they, they want to, 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 to switch. Like, why should I switch from cloud to, to, to this new thing? Does it give me like any better experience? Like if it only gives me privacy, I don't care. That, that's the, the, the answer of many, many users. The thing is like these, uh, these like basically these are small, additional like uh, uh, improvements to the experience like less duplicated data or faster speed like right now a lot of users work from home from their offices like spend most of the time at their home or at an office somewhere like basically stationary but by having this this box at their place you know like the, the, the speed of communication of fetching data or uploading data would would be like very very fast compared to cloud like if i'm a photographer and having this box and i want to upload my files to, to keep copies of them i can do it very fast when when the box is close to me i upload them to the box and then it takes care of basically backing it up on the network rather than just having to send my photos to a, to google like server somewhere uh, which 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 takes more time for a large file, right? So so uh, I I believe these are small benefits that the users get can be a driver for for the switch. Yeah, and and talking about these benefits, right? So one of the things that we talk about is the token, like the Fula token, um, which is what is being used to reward participants in the network, right? Uh, so how does it like? First is like, how are rewards generated? Like, uh, you know, that's what you're going to do, do in, as part of your test net, but how are rewards generated? Uh, that's one. And then how will it sustain in the long term? You all know like how Bitcoin actually has this white paper where they know exactly what's going to happen every four years. And then there is uh, another hundred years or so, like there is a hard cap to 21 million, right? So how is what is Fula's network to ensure that this actually appreciates over a period of time? And is there an inflationary or deflationary aspect that you have been thinking along as you define the tokenomics? Yeah, very good question. Uh, I mean, that's that's the biggest challenge, right? To balance off the price appreciation of the token with the utility provision in the network. That's the challenge that we need to solve for. And we're taking, taking uh, lessons from the books of previous experiments, right? So we have like other networks to look after, Bitcoin being the prominent one, uh, Helium being a very similar one in, in the utility that it, Filecoin being another in that it, it, it's actually, it's exact domain, it's storage, uh, but it has the distinction between miners and users. So there are those to draw the, uh, draw the lessons from and that's exactly what we're doing on the tokenomics side so we we have a fixed cap token so there's no inflation we don't think there needs to be deflation like fixed cap should be enough like we can we can look at bitcoin and that's been enough paired with halving so we have halving too so in our current plans like this needs to pass the testnet stage but we have halving every two years. 
right? Uh, so it's fixed cap. So there is not there there is not going to be more made in the future, and it's the, the reward's going to be halved every two years. That's those are the current current uh, primitives there that allow the price appreciation for the token. And in terms of in terms of rewards, we have. Uh, the, you're rewarded based on the utility that you share with the network. So if you share your storage or compute, so compute doesn't exist, protocols for compute that don't exist yet. We only currently have storage. But uh, Kate mentioned at the very beginning, we have very uh, interesting plans for AI next year that will, uh, that will uh, embody the compute aspect. So, but generally uh, you're rewarded based on the resources that you share with the network and you provide proofs like continuous proofs for your, to, to get your reward, right? So I back up Essence photos, right? And I uh, submit a proof that yes, this is the proof that I kept Essence photos for the past day. And then I will be mining my rewards. And you had said, you know, how do the rewards uh, how do the rewards work? What would it look like? I'm kind of curious. So as we develop that um, application on the phone that box owners would use to interact with their box, what sort of features would you like to see that um, would help you understand you know, where you are, how much, you've how much you have been rewarded, how much storage you've offered to the network? I'm curious on what would look good or feel exciting to you. Yeah, I think, the, the, so it's more like from feature perspective, right? Like what do you see it on the app? Like you have an app, yeah, I think, I think there are things that we can look into. Like, I think if you look into uh, Bitcoin miners, for example, right, you look into the hash rate. So what are the relevant metrics that are important as a box owner for me, right? So the relevant metrics are how much storage am I using? How much storage is left to spare? How much of that spared usage is being used by the network? And how much of that is being rewarded? Or what, what are the rewards look like? I think that's the bad minimum, right? Like if you just think from a box owner perspective, and then there will always be nuts where you want to look into the stats of like, you know, the electricity usage, what, what did it cost based on the region that you are in? Did you actually break even? How far are you from break even based on the, uh, based on the token price at this point in time in the market and so on and so forth. And if you held on to the fuller token uh, and you believe in it in the long term, what does it look like for you in the future? Like five years, 10 years down the line, you have a, do you want to own more than one box? I think that's a good question to ask for any box owner, right? Like, because you need to balance, you need to balance in a way that you own some of your files in the box and you want to spare some of the storage to the network and you want to scale that up. You just don't want all your space to be used up just for yourself. So, so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think those are the metrics that would be useful to see on the dashboard if that's possible. <laughs> I hope you uh, gave us a copy of the transcript, Nanda, because that's quite a comprehensive list you just rolled off and uh, definitely will take some good notes on that. <laughs> You're definitely thinking from the perspective of a box owner. And I think, you know, we're often challenged actually from sort of Web2 investors or these more institutional investors. You know, what if these DAP users and the box owners are different people? How are you going to appeal to the DAP users? How will you appeal to the box owners? You know, I love the fact that SM keeps reinforcing today. They are not differentiated. They are one and the same, right? And so the features of those new exciting um, web threes and dApps you're going to use are one thing, but the uh, the input you've given on what 
should be part of that um, app that just helps you communicate with your own box in your own home. You know, just like you may control your robotic vacuum, you'd like to know how much of my vacuum uh, carpet got vacuumed today or how much is there left to do. So I really love those insights and we'll hang on to those. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Kate. And yeah, I, I, sorry, go on. I, I, I was, so another thing is, Kate, we, we, we will like onboard people like power users like Nanda. Uh, like people with insight, we'll, we would love to have them in the DAO. So those opinions brought to the community and like um, shaping the user experiences that we make in, in the ecosystem. So that would be our next immediate challenge to shift off the focus from what we've been focusing on now, like creating the hardware, getting it out of the door and like having the first user base. Next immediate step for us is to create those DAO primitives in place where people, insightful people like Nanda can come in and provide the feedback that can shed light on the direction that the network's taking. Uh, I'm so honored to hear that from you, Kevin. <laughs> uh, would be glad to be part of that actually, part of the DAO whenever that kicks in. Um, so uh, speaking of the challenges, right? So I want to, uh, you know, think a bit about uh, the challenges that you are facing right now. Uh, what we are looking at is a network, right? We want to get this network started. And I was recently reading uh, the cold, cold start network problem from Andrew Chen. And the book is filled with insights based on his experience from Uber uh, and how, how companies actually face difficulties to get over this cold start problem, right? I think you have a head start in terms of the network that you have built over a period of time and the uh, VC community that is actually backing you up and because of the, having access to not just capital, but also to the network. So what are the, so one challenge that I could see is like being able to cross this cold start problem, right? Like how, how do you see crossing that? Like what, what is your, how do you define your uh, escape velocity where you say like, okay, even function land stays silent for forever, Box will succeed and this network has already taken off. So what, what are the success parameters that you are defining right now? What does that state look like? And are there any other challenges that you are looking at from, from function land perspective? We, we like to think of it as a chicken and egg problem. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a chicken and egg problem because Cold start the, the <laughs> real Netflix. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we have it, right? We have, we have the same problem. I mean, for we, we have two actors in the ecosystem. We have consumers and we have developers, right? We need we need both of them to jump up, jump aboard to uh, make this ecosystem at, at, attractive to either of them, right? Um, so first we need a network with nodes so that it attracts developers to come and build for these nodes because they see a, a consumer base, right? And on the other hand, for the users, we have the opposite problem. They need things to be built for this ecosystem before they join and make that constitute that network. So if they join an empty space, they don't want to join it because like, where, where's the network? Am I, <laughs> am I alone here? So that's the chicken and egg problem. Yep. that we, we have. Um, so we, we try to like come up with uh, creative, hopefully, solutions for addressing those problems. 
Uh, first thing was that we identified like three specific apps that are very useful for day-to-day uh, of people. And we, these are the things that are keeping us from like jumping like full time to DAO. But by end of this year, we need to deliver three apps. We need to deliver the photos. Obviously that's out in the world, like it's already functional. We need to deliver a password manager. So something like your one password or last pass or whatever you have, Bitwarden. And a Dropbox alternative, something that you sync your files into. So we thought that, yes, so as a user, if I have those three utilities, this would be attractive to me, right? Just having this. So so we we said, okay, we will carry that weight in-house and we build those three apps ourselves just to create like reference points for developers to continue the work. See, ah, yes, you can deliver apps to end users with the same quality and it's doable and it will be people who will download them. And so that's that's for uh, concern, the, the user's concern. And again, uh, we, we needed to communicate to the outside world that there is appetite for this hardware, like people, like not, not, not crypto degens, not enthusiasts of the web free. Normal people, people that you see in street will come and buy this device just because they, the, of the values that will be communicated to them. So we put that into an experiment and that's our Indiegogo campaign. So we created a crowdfunding campaign and we didn't target the crypto natives. We targeted mainstream audience, people that you see in street. And we created mainstream ads like with videos and content. And we just, we just stated our case. Like this is, this is why this makes sense, right? For a non-crypto enthusiast. If you see the content on the Indiegogo page, it's not targeted towards crypto regions. Like they get it in a, in a snap, right? <laughs> but, uh, and, and it worked. Like that's, that's, we got confirmation that yes, if, if you can clearly state the objectives, mainstream will buy into the mission. That's great. That's great. Yeah, go on, Kate. Yeah, Nandan, a key part, um, of course, is the fact that it's plug and play, right? So the device itself, I mean, I think people aspire to be, and rightfully so, Filecoin miners and Helium miners or, or maybe all sorts of different projects like that and hats off to them. And But for those people that, let's say Kayvon's mom, you know, Kayvon's mom could get this box and plug it in and be very proud of it on her coffee table. And it really takes off that um, the ramp up, right? The technical part. And um, also just to mention the fact that you don't physically have to own a box to be part of the network. The fact that, you know, developers could get up and running with these NPM installs or perhaps these developer kits that we bring online. Um, so that's going to really help with that chicken and egg or that cold start problem because the, the network's not reliance on box owners it's reliance on nodes in the network and there's ways to get those started so we can even appeal to um not crypto g dens but maker spaces coding clubs i mean we've got people in our community who have caught up to our devs if not trying to get ahead on okay i'm getting my node installed like what's next you know so it's really exciting i think um although of course we can't um discount this cold start problem, as you alluded to, or the chicken and egg. Um, certainly, we've got some advantages in our favor. And Esan, do you want to chime in? I know Kayvon and I get really excited sometimes. I'm curious to your thoughts. I know that, that that's cool. I like what, what you guys mentioned actually was, was pretty complete. So, and so far, like on, on the user side, as Kayvon mentioned, our Indiegogo campaign has seen a pretty good, good traction from the users. 
on the developer side, our GitHub has seen a pretty good traction from the developers. Like, like, with, with, like right now, our GitHub is, a, is in the top 3% of open source projects by, by stars. Uh, and uh, like a lot of developers forked our code. As Kate mentioned, they are like playing with it, uh, installing the, the, the repo on their uh, Raspberry Pis. So those are like the things that like probably like initially get some, some early adopters, like those innovators interested in the project, start things off. And as users see the benefit, as developers see the monetization, more users and developers adopt the ecosystem and like it, it, it keeps rolling. And the, the other thing is uh, exactly through what, what Kayvon mentioned, through the full association and through the grants and hackathons that the full association like holds and uh, like basically onboards initial developers to, to, to develop applications, the initial applications. And as these applications grow, obviously like users can see more benefit and like adopt more to the ecosystem. Yeah, another important thing like to just to like wrap up this, this section, I guess, is the uh, innovation that blockchain smart contracts bring to the table, right? There was this tweet like a couple of months back that stated this, can't be evil is greater than don't be evil. So with DAOs and with smart contracts in place, enforcing immutable smart contracts in there, there's no way for a network to go rogue, right? rock pool and change terms like say ah you we promise you free first forever photos now we're going to charge you that's just not possible it's the, you're not it's not contingent of, uh, on the goodwill of people it's just not possible yeah yeah no, that's a that's a good point actually just out of curiosity so all this data that exists within full network right uh is it can it be used in other networks? Like if there is another network that is coming up that is very similar to Fula, where they are building up their own hardware and software compatibility, how how locked in are the users? Probably that's a that's a better way to say it. How locked in are the users or the owners of Box are going to be to this network? And can they share the resources with other networks? If yeah, one important aspect of like the, the, the network is to keep users' data secure and safe. So unless the user wants no one else, be it another user in the ecosystem or, an, or, or another ecosystem, they shouldn't be able to access the user's data, right? So that's like what, what the, the, the concept of encryption and private keys provide. But the thing is we are creating the ecosystem, everything from the protocols and to the blockchain side, modular, meaning like, like we are like uh, basically creating our protocols based on LIP2P and IPFS. But at some point, maybe like someone just wants to replace IPFS with another ecosystem, like, um, like a new thing, they can easily replace that, that, that module and put the new, new thing in and it should still work like that. That's that's how we are building it. Regarding blockchain, again, like we are positioning ourselves as a layer three chain with bridges to other other blockchains. So one can have like their Fula on Polygon, the other person on Polkadot, and one on Kudos. 
because like we are a layer three, we provide bridges to Kudos, provide bridges to Polkadot. And when, when I say- Alborad, really, Alborad, you know, really- so I wanted to mention them because we are layer three, fully multi-chain. Algorand's been a really great and early supporter and actually just on the line with Pietro recently. So we want to make sure that it's well known. So not only will we have it provide a choice to users, but Kudos will be one of those choices, Algorand so far. And of course, working with the uh, Polkadot substrate team. Sorry, Asan, go on. Oh yeah, sure. And yeah, that that's modularity is basically what, what made sure that the user is not locked in even to the to, to, to these protocols. Like, uh, as I said, if a group of users, a group of developers, they want to just create a fork and create their own network, like Fula 2, they, they can easily like replace the protocols. If the users see the benefit in that ecosystem, well, yeah, why not switch? Um, Nanda, I wanted to go back to your point about the data for a second. So I know we said your know, AI protocols are a little further down the roadmap, but I'm really excited about this idea of, for instance, with Google Photos, how we'll be able to search and index and share our photos in a data preserving manner, right? So that's some of like the research and things we're starting to think about. But what I get really excited about is this idea of can we do decentralized AI or data um, processing, you know? So I won't get into the weeds on that, but there was another cohort company with us, that Live Ventures called Fleming Protocol. And they're really pioneering this like uh, patient-led health discovery, right? And so if we can use our encrypted data on our boxes, but say, hey, I want to be a part of an algorithm that I found on Ocean Protocol, I want my data to go into that marketplace. You know, I really see this as opening up a lot of doors. And with um, the Filecoin network, for instance, we're looking at this idea of Filecoin oracles or the Chainlink oracle, you know? And so if your data, you own your data, it's secure and you know where it is, then you start to get to put into different oracles and do amazing things with it. And um, it's your choice and you always have it secure and yeah, you get to do with it, whatever you choose. That's great. Yeah, blockchain, blockchain interoperability is the key word there, right? So, I mean, we start with the hardware. Uh, with the hardware, we're not locking in anyone to function that. I mean, the box hardware doesn't have our branding. It has its own different logo. It just invites, it, it, it's completely open source so people can download it and build, start building their own. Uh, it's not our IP, it's something that we want to share and it's gonna be a protocol for hardware. Standardization, standardization of like how, how our hardware can in, in, in shape of towers sit next to each other on the hardware side. But then when they physically sit next to each other and like have active connections to each other, that provides a way for us to now think about, ah, how can we make in, uh, interactions on the software side? So we don't see the future as a monopoly by any single network or any single token. Uh, it, it's never been the DNA of Web3. It's, uh, there's no monopolies. It's just interoperability through standards that we call protocols. Yeah. Absolutely. No, that's a great point, actually. Thanks for bringing that, Kevon. Uh, Just want to bring it to the people who are listening to it to say that, like, when when Vox actually takes over the world, no, it's not It's not taking over the world. That's not where we are after. It's actually ensuring that everyone is part of that world and everyone is rewarded for whatever contributions that we are making to the network. And yeah, that's the point that I wanted to get away and was uh, beautifully put across. Thanks, Kevon, for that. All right. Uh, so we touched on. So I, I wanted to touch. So, mm. uh, sorry. One thing that we actually we missed in the conversation was 
the other possibility that owning this box or like this server at home creates is, is right now Web3 and decentralized web. Uh, it, it is having a hard time entering into uh, some of the industries like, like banking because the data there is very regulated and very strict, like, like users' data cannot leave certain perimeters like of the country, for example. I live in the and UK. On, <laughs> yeah, and on, 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 on a lot of blockchains, like uh, many of them, this is not something that users can control. Like once your data is there, is, is decentralized, it's distributed all over the world. Uh, on, on, on Fula, the thing is, first, we are not storing data on blockchain, we're storing them on, on the, the protocol layer. And the user has the control by choosing their pools. So they can choose uh, like the pool that they join and it can be like their neighborhood, their city, their state, their country. So they know exactly where the data is located with like which within which perimeter, which both like solves that, that regulation, reg regulation issue and also increases the speed. So when I'm in Canada and I'm accessing my data, like within my neighborhood, it, it can be very fast, even faster than cloud because the travel between my phone and the place where, where it's holding my data, it's probably like one ISP away. So it can be even faster than cloud. Yeah, one other point that I wanted to touch base on was uh, with respect to the Helium network, uh, which was released last year. And then I, I believe it has been a huge success. Uh, as part of actually providing the telecom network through users, right? So that is, that's a well-executed idea uh, and, and people have benefited out of it. So my question is, uh, how similar is your network when it comes to, when it comes to Fuller Network? Is it, it's a completely different audience. It's a completely different use case, uh, but in terms of the tokenomics or in terms of the support that you're getting from from the advisors of Helium Network, how do you feel in terms of you know the next one year and three years and then five years down the line? Like what what is your take on it? I would say we, we are very complementary, like the very complementary use cases, and we are hopefully very we, we are also very good friends. Like Kate was in a, sitting in a panel with Helium like two weeks ago, and uh, they were looking into like how it get, it's gonna perform in the Indiegogo campaign, because the path that Helium, the way they solved their cold start problem, was they started with the crypto legions. So the Helium miners at the beginning were going out for USDT. The only way you could buy the Helium miners was through USDT. So that meant you were already a crypto native. So at the experiment that we conducted that we're gonna test out the mainstream waters, that was really interesting to them. And we are in constant talks with them. Like we, we, we name drop sometimes that there's gonna be a router tower down the road, right? So this would be coming from these, these partnerships as they materialize. So it's, it's like one, one confirmation and then these complementary ecosystem, it makes perfect sense. So. If you have three towers with your box, one is compute and storage, the other is docking station, the third one is out to be the router Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I wanted to add, you know, Helium is, is very focused right now on reimagining the cell phone tower, right, itself. <laughs> so I like to think, you know, there may be some, um, you know, some interaction here as well. And I think also, you know, Helium um, miners get to choose who they purchase hardware from, right? So maybe if down the line there's a Helium tower that someone has built, you know, and it's a very sort of ethical purchase and you know that that is going to help um, provide economic regional development where that developer came from. I think that's a really interesting edge for Helium as well. That's great, that's nice. And and what does your plans look like for throughout this year, for, for the rest of the year and for the next year as well? <laughs> I know we are, you're looking to ship the product by end of this year, November 2022, if I'm not wrong. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a good point. We have to actually remake our milestones chart for our deck because we've almost reached that testnet end of QT part, right? So really exciting times ahead. Yeah, and in, in our decks, we, we, we've had this, all these milestones that are now done. So we need to be like, go into more details on the remaining things. So for the rest of this year, it's all about the first deployments. So. Uh, by the end of year, we want to ship to people, ship to people who bought from Indiegogo and uh, onboard our first nodes in the network and deliver to them an end-to-end -end experience, right? We want to deliver on the whole experience that we promised uh, from that plug-and-play ability to like their existing the blockchain side to those free apps to start with. So as a user, when you join, you have everything that we were talking about the day one. So hopefully that's, that, that's going to keep us busy for the rest of this year. <laughs> but then when that's in, the, that, that's in place, like when, when we have like a pipeline of sustaining that, uh, like onboarding new users and uh, like finding hopefully like hardware OEMs who want to join in and build the, build the hardware, then next year we're going to shift the focus fully to the DAO. So like conducting hackathons, grants, and everything to uh, to jump on the other side of the ecosystem, which is developers, focusing full time on them. And we have a good grip there because we our own team's DNA is very, very much. We have like ten developers in, in the team, so that that's 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 familiar waters. So by the end of year. <laughs> Be done with the uncharted waters, and then next year do things that you you know how to do. Essentially, just look at functional or box or crypto or being able to incentivize. Right, it's just one aspect of it. There are other parallels. There are other exponential technologies like AI actually taking it taking on its own route. I was looking at Dali pictures that um, people were sharing on Twitter, and it was just like mind blowing. So. There's another AJ aspect that is going on and so forth. So how do you how do you see the world in general, not necessarily just the space? How do you see the world in general actually? How do you guys actually see it in the in the next 10 years? Like what does 2030 look like for you? It's been like pretty amazing to see all these uh, decentralized utilities that are coming out. Like you you mentioned helium, like as a decentralized like basically router. Uh, there, there was another project that I saw uh, deeper. It's a decentralized, uh, yes. like private network. So instead yeah. of VPN, they are introducing this DPN, which which is pretty cool. So so it's 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 like like more utilities are coming out 
like uh, as as these these decentralized protocols are evolving and uh, like it, it it's like the evol evolution from web one when when like yahoo uh, staff were putting out like the content without just with users just being the readers of those content and which transformed to to web two where users can could also go on like uh, like these websites these these socials comment and participate in the discussions uh, so that opened up a lot of like opportunities for the users for to to for for the creators to monetize their content and now from that switch from web two to web three it's like okay open up the, the and let's let people participate but also like let them have the control so not not just participate not not just be participants but be the the, the primary owners without the middleman and that like what what i see in that is it, it, it what, what it can do is it just increases that that monetization for the for the actual creators for for the like first-hand creators without having that middleman in between which actually in in, in, in it also like increases that that productivity because now they have more time to focus on the creation instead of just constantly thinking of ways to to monetize it more because because someone else is taking my share yeah kate do you want to go next and i can Sure, I was going to say, Asad Lance is very like, pragmatic. You know, he's an engineer by training. <laughs> you know, I think there's like lots of different ways we could ask the question, what does 2030 look like, right? So for our, our DAO and our governance association or function land or hardware, the software. But, um, you know, again, this idea that of truly monetizing open source devs all over the world and, and the economic development that's going to spur up and spin up around these people, I think it's just so powerful. I don't think we even have an idea of what, could be possible just from the advent of open source monetization alone is so very exciting. Um, but Kayvon, let us hear about your vision as well. Sure. Um, I, I, th I think we need to look no further than pop culture, like the, the uh, TV content that we see, right? <laughs> see what, 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 what general audience are thinking about the direction that tech is taking. Um, and we can see Black Mirror, right? Upload. These are like rebels against, like the, the idea is rebelling against the direction that tech is going, right? It's like, it's, we don't want to live in the, that's the message. We don't want to live in a world that looks like this, right? We, and it's, it's like completely evident. Like that's exactly the trajectory that we're taking. Like, like give, uh, give a star to everyone, like, like judge them by the stars that they have, like, uh, have the pay for pay subscription for the right to breathe. So that's that's not, not out of the cards in this current trajectory. So first thing is to see that people are fed up with the trajectory that the current tech, big tech essentially is taking us with them. And then like the uh, labels, right? Like uh, uh, Google is the new Microsoft, right? I mean, it's there's no end to this. <laughs> Microsoft is the old Google. No, I mean these are old centralized. Like by DNA, they were designed to be centralized authorities, right? Uh, they can impose their opinion on freedom of speech. They can decide who's to be the platform and who's going to be platform, right? So 
this is uh, what we're going to see in the next 10 years now is that people will rebel against these ideas. Like, we don't need the next Putin in, 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 in the name of a big tech company, like overseeing what we're doing. Uh, and, and these will be manifested in decentralized alternatives. So DAOs will come along to the, to the rescue until we see the limitations of them, right? Like, I mean, when, when cloud came, it was a it was a better user experience. It was a better paradigm than centralized data centers, right? Like that, it, it was a, it was a better option. That's why it took off, right? Now this new paradigm of decentralization is going to come and take over, just like cloud did, right? There's no there, there's no going against it. It's like written on the wall. Like people are fed up. Like if you if you go and like watch watch pop culture from back then, it was like tech is hard. Like IT craft was 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 the buzz of the day, right? So tech is hard to solve. Tech is authoritative as today's pop culture. That's going to be solved. And then we're going to experience what, what shortcomings this new model has and solve for that together. That's a great way to put it, Kevon, Kevon, actually. That's, that's nice. That's, I'm glad that actually every one of you have unique and individual views of it and not, a, not really a, a common consensus one. And that's actually very healthy to see, really, isn't it? Like from a team, you don't want everyone to hold the same view and then say like, okay, this is what is going to happen, but you want every individual to have their own view. Uh, that's great, actually. That's great to see. What is your most contrarian view uh, right now? Like something that not many people in the industry would agree, but you strongly believe in that. Um, <laughs> that's a tough question. <laughs> You know, I'm going to mention, I talk about this a little bit. And um, so I am. I came to this problem and I'm only really almost stuck around in function and initially. Now I see the grand vision, but I saw this as an opportunity for farmers. I've always studied agriculture and both subsistence farmers and your know, big farmers. And people don't miss this sometimes. Farmers can be marketed to and make in decisions as individuals, even though they may be mega corporations or be turning a lot of revenue over, right? So one of the contrarian um, views, or I guess like, contentious things I'm getting into arguments with people about is this idea of data ownership and things like that in terms of in, in agriculture. So a lot of people don't see a role for what we're building in agriculture. And I really like this idea of our technology. Like you said um, earlier about data being harvested, right, by big tech. And I like this idea of can nodes or new IoT networks, perhaps a private helium powered IoT network could allow these farmers to actually start generating or growing or you know generating their own data that then they hold an escrow in our box while they then decide who they give those granular permissions to or what they decide to do with that data and it's a very exciting um, additional source of revenue to the farm and I'm mentioning this in the suppression of your contrary so I'm mentioning this because yeah I get a lot of pushback on it but it's something I really really truly believe in and I've had a few disheartening conversations as a, a woman in agriculture recently and so I've had this epiphany this week that I'm going to tackle these questions around data and farmers and agriculture as a woman in Web3. And I think it's a much more powerful platform and I'm going to leave all the dogma behind and this idea that you have to be perfectly quaffed and perfectly you know, spoken and articulate and say, hey, I believe in this. I see it as a tool for individuals and for farmers. And uh, I'm going to run with it as a proud woman in three. And I thank everyone, these uh, founders of mine, for giving me that platform. 
Yeah, it's a pleasure to have Kate with us. I mean, she, she is the flagship of like women with free in our team, like the torchbearer. <laughs> um, and, and any, sorry, go, no, 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 go any crazy idea actually? So, just to support, I strongly support you, Kate, like with whatever just that you just shared. And any crazy idea will look crazy until it is actually proven. Like, once it is proven, then everyone will be like, yeah, 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 that's fine. But But what you share right now is actually, I don't think people are thinking about this at this point in time, like integrating Web3 with agriculture. And I think you will be a pioneer in this, like being able to solve farmers' problems using Web3. I haven't really thought about it so far. Like this is the first time I'm actually hearing it. And that's from you. So thank you for putting that seed into my mind, actually, to start thinking about it uh, or read more read a bit more about it i'll be looking forward to the all the work that you'll be doing in the space kit thank you very very much nanda that means a lot <laughs> i'm emotional actually because it actually just means so much <laughs> so nanda to your question what's the uh, contrarian idea that we have i mean it depends on the audience we've been pitching a lot right so <laughs> getting the company to this stage we've been pitching the like countless people and whenever we've uh, been pitching the crypto native audience like the uh web3 enthusiasts that those type of people that that niche that's still a niche we need to accept that web3 is a niche like out of 10 people in the world not even one of them have heard of web3 so we're still a niche but pitching to those <laughs> pitching to those audiences the common answer has been this, duh, obvious. I mean, it's obvious. We don't see anything. Yeah, this is like just just what Web3, you just have like a plan for executing on things that we've been saying all this time in Web3. So obviously, the answer is obviously, right? But when we pitch to Web2 people, like to the more conventional, like the 99% of the crowd, then that's where we get the contrarian aspect of it, right? Like, um, no, what's the defensibility on this? How would not someone just co come and copy and paste this? Like you said, it's open source. That's the greatest risk. So there, there's, there's no, no protection for you. So you don't have IP, you don't have patents like in, in the USPTO. So uh, <laughs> the contrarian uh, idea that we have is that open source is going to win and the end user space as well. So that's what we getting constant pushback on, right? They will like, they say, yeah, open source is for the servers, for the dev tools. It's never gonna bridge to the end user space. So our contrarian view is, uh, hold our beer. <laughs> great one, great one, Kevin. Great one, because the, that's a real contrarian view, right? Like if you, if you speak to people who are actually regular, even developers who are part of the big tech, right? I think it's very difficult to, difficult for them to see this future. So I think it's a, it's a good one, Kevin. Awesome. And I think our main challenge, like for actually most of Web3 companies challenge is putting that messaging right to come as Kayvon said, like when you talk to uh, like a blockchain, like uh, uh, 
no, like as someone who works in blockchain or crypto, like crypto enthusiast, they 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 clearly get the message. Like you 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 say it's a box, and they they get the message. But we need to come up with with a clear and appealing message to clearly communicate the values to to the mainstream users, those who don't care about crypto or decentralization, and give like provide them with, with the exact values that they receive and that's when that switch happens and that that's what 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 happened like as i said like the, from from switch to to computers to the cloud like like why would maybe maybe at some point someone thought okay why would people just give up their computers and pay someone else to to, to hold their data you know like that that should be a crazy crazy idea back then but we saw the switch because because the the benefits was clear to the users that okay let, let, let microsoft have my data instead of my pc that's yeah. safer that that's easier to to share we yeah. need to come up with the same messaging for for the switch to happen yeah and and because you shared that isan uh one point i would like to share is i think i think with the cloud adoption what really happened was one the benefits and two the incentives problem i think cloud also solved an incentives problem like uh startups really right like that that's startups were the people who actually started using cloud and enterprises actually came in very pretty late to it pretty late to the cloud uh, uh, adoption startups didn't want to own a data center suddenly with a line of code you can start a server which and you can deploy your code and anyone can access it and you can scale it up as your product actually scales and that was the value proposition that was provided to startups and then slowly enterprises started uh, adopting as the cloud services started maturing in the last uh, 15 20 years uh, i think similarly the new way of uh, you know startups or innovative apps or products that will come through in the network would want to use uh, functional land or box and that's where i think that would be a great use case like they want to, they should not it's it's something where they incentivize their users to start using their apps right you, you use the app and you get paid for it like who wouldn't want it <laughs> right so that's that's the kind of uh, uh that's the kind of incentive model which i believe will drive the adoption of web3 in the uh, traditional market uh, just want to share as as that was actually you brought up a pretty good point because one yeah. other thing is uh so so right now like a lot of these startups small businesses they 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 deal with the customers and right now they need to have like hold like store the customers data somewhere so they either like some of them pay these like aws of the world like central servers to hold the data of the customers which they don't really want to hold like it's a liability for them if if something happens to the customers data like it, it it's going to hit hard on them and the opportunity that like uh, having this decentralized world opens up to them is just okay just give the users data back to them you don't really want them what you want is just just like uh, basically the users themselves like you don't want their data and give the liability back to the users let them have it and that 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 actually reduces the cost reduces the risks and everything for those small businesses which now like maybe they they will be the the early adopters like maybe yeah i wanted to comment on this so in the toronto ecosystem i worked for about four years sort of pushing the cloud on smes or startups and i think you know we looked at programs like aws activate or um you know microsoft or startups 
a lot of times they were tied into accelerators. So if you wanted to join an accelerator, it either was a nice gift that was given to you or this expectation that you would then take on those services. And so in the beginning, that was great. And especially when it was pay as you go and things like that. So people did build their startups on those services. And um, but I have one company I'm advising right now. Um, I won't mention who they are, but they're using, you know, uh, sort of computer vision, but satellite, hyperspectral satellite imagery to do carbon credit verification. And so they were on a roll and they were processing and the models were fantastic. And all of a sudden, if they do one more farm, they're just going to break the bank. Like they just, there's just no way they can afford to continue their current business model with that structure. And so, um, well, two points, I think, you know, maybe we have to get savvier about how we put our opportunities forward to startups because the government was pushing AWS activated and our situation or all these startup programs. So, you know, maybe it's a novel way to help uh, bring it to the attention of people. But I just want to say, although it was really great, and I think it's really done a lot of advancements of startups and innovation, um, a lot of startups in my ecosystem are now tied to those cloud services and perhaps even using Stripe and these different payment processes that are just eating up all of their margins. And so um, I think uh, a lot of rethinking is going to have to happen quite soon around that. I just wanted to touch base on the um, on the support from from your investors, like right. So, what kind of support did you actually get from the community of investors that you have on board? I think you have some pretty good names. Uh, the one that I'm familiar with is like Outlier Ventures, uh, but I believe there are quite a few on on your market. Uh, so, do you want to share a bit about like how that network helped to reach where you are today? Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, what happens in the Web3 and in a crypto startup is the opposite of what happens in a Web2 startup. So when you sit with your investor in a Web2 startup, it's, about, it's all about fear. Like, how do I lie to them so that <laughs> they, don't, they cannot see my hand so they can... They, they won't do something crazy that, uh, that damages my startup. That's, and before that, it's, it's actually getting a meeting with them. Like, um, yes, Esam puts this very, very eloquently. If you're a Web2 startup, can you get a meeting with the CEO of Google? How, how uh, probable is that, that as, a, as an up-and-coming startup with like three people, you get a meeting with the CEO of Google? So that doesn't happen, right? Um, it's exactly the opposite in, in the Web3 ecosystem. So, uh, I mean, at, at the very first days of our startup, Function Lab, we met the Google of Web3 protocol labs. But like uh, down the road, we met the CEO as well, like a couple of times. It, it was an out of reach. And it, it came from the, like these uh, collaboration frameworks that's, that's and, and everything, uh, striving to be a DAO, right? Like Outlier, you mentioned Outlier, for example. We we joined them as a as an like we joined their accelerator program and, and had them as an investor. But now they're they're turning into a DAO themselves, right? So this aspiration to be decentralized, for like from like the investor point of view, uh, then provides way for innovation and for uh, this collaboration to the maximum, right? And the support that we've been getting has come from, like in all sorts of uh, areas. Of, like for example, Protocol Labs has given us the technology, right? I mean, we've been building, uh, standing on the shoulder of giants, building the software that's inside the box. 
uh, and we are like we we, we are like uh, we can even like put requests imagine like requesting something from google if google was your investor right change your software so that it acts like this that's that's the kind of request that we, that we put in front of protocol labs for example right and and like for outlier like after the acceleration program we are now part of a send so when you have like this web brick startup there's normally these many battles that you need to fight right like for us we added one to it like hardware <laughs> At least, like many other startups, don't have that battle to fight. Um, but we added that. But then uh, we have another battle until the end of year: is a token launch. How do you launch a token so that it's sustainable? It doesn't dump on the first day. These challenges. They have a specific program for it that Outlier sent that we're going to go through and and talk with the best in the industry to figure those things out. And. Uh, just apart from the investors that we have, like like Outlier Venture, Master Venture, Protocol Labs, uh, and like many other investors from all, all over the world, actually, like it's a very decentralized investor list as well. We also have pretty good partners like like Kudos, Polkadot, Polygon, and uh, like uh, uh, also on the hardware side, for example, like like. Uh, we, we like framework will be providing the expansion cards for the box and Yves Bahar and Fuse project are working on the uh, fine tuning the design of the box. So like we, 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 we were fortunate enough to create pretty good partnerships and uh, like that's the thing like that's the, I, I believe that's the mindset in Web3 that okay instead of me creating this monopoly on on the industry that I'm not really uh, I'm not even the best at. Let's collaborate with others who are working in the industry. Let let's reuse what what's been there. Like we reuse the expansion cards from framework. Like why create a new thing when it's there? So let let's collaborate. Let's reuse what's been there to create better things instead of just just trying to create this monopoly and like turning everyone, everyone out of the business. Um, Nanda, I want to, uh, to jump in here. So first of all, yes, we've had excellent help from Alive as an investor and, uh, and great introductions to, to strong women in Web3. We've had help from, you know, Rui Morales and, and Camille on that team. But one thing I want you to know is that as I work with other companies, Web3 companies who, who are starting to raise their own first seed round, we're very fortunate that we have someone on our team, Irfan, who is a tokenomics person but who has been a retail investor and thinking about these projects actively since pre-2017, right? So at the end of the day, how you look to a retail investor and to your community matters a lot. So this idea of, you know, go talk to this angel and then go try talk to the earliest and most active VC in your region and hope to get through them, that doesn't need to be an equation anymore. So you want to, if you're a tier one project from the start, you want to make sure you maintain that. So those names and backers you have on your table and your seed run, are imperative. So we are very proud of ours. Wouldn't have it any other way. But in Web2, the only people that really care about who invested in you are other investors. You know, like if you're a user of Stripe or Instagram, you don't care who was in that round or the C round or the F round. But in Web3, your community is actively saying, who are the backers? Who is in that portfolio of that backer? And they're studying you and they're watching you. So they want to know. So to future Web3 companies out there, there's a lot of sort of conflicting advice. And so as we have now closed our seed round and looked to our strategic round, 
you know, who we choose, which exchanges and which investors come onto that cap table um, will be very important. And I want other Web3 companies to be really uh, focused when they're going to that seed round about who they bring on. Um, Yes, and I want to mention with the going into the Ascend program as well, that's been really, really helpful because it's helping us to make sure, are we ready for that TGE event? And they've started from day one and they've been scoring and scoring and, you know, they didn't even want to look at us until that white paper was fully flushed with citations, you know, and so now we're at that point. Um, and then I do want to mention though, we are of course getting help from Techstars. And so some people would say, why would you do Outline Ventures and Techstars and everything like that? Um, and I won't you know, belabor that point, but I want to say that for the people that have been supportive of that cross collaboration and have been um, you know, in favor of the choice that we made, I just want to you know, thank those people because what we can, we're all trying to educate everybody on Web3 and Outline Ventures is huge and global. They've got a really, really big footprint in like, so the, the Asian VC world and European VC world and everything like that. But, um, we want to take those learnings, you know, from that investor and that backer and help share it with these up and coming North American startups who maybe hadn't even thought to look yet at outlier or Canadian startups, you know, in their local little accelerators. So, yeah, we're very, very well backed and very, very fortunate and looking forward to see who we may have in our strategic round. And another very, very interesting thing in the, on the investor side, so we, we mentioned the programming and the collaborations from the investors. We didn't discuss like how the interactions are. So... We've, we've had, like all three of us, had the experience of a Web2 company. The interaction with the investor there is when they want to join, like they, they give you the meeting after like reaching through three, co three warm introductions, then they will give you the meeting. And when they give you the meeting, the, the very first question is um, uh, in, in the, uh, to keep the time uh, in check, first tell us, who else is on the cap table? Because if this and this and this are not on the cap table, it's a no for us. Um, <laughs> so that's that, that's what you get in, in, in the web three investment world. Like it, it's hard to reach, and when you reach, it's just like it's essentially begging. Can you can you please give me money? Is <laughs> is the way you approach it? Here, our experience has been, oh, this is cool. What you're building is so cool. I'm gonna bring this and this and this to the table, right? As opposed to like, I, I needed to secure those before that party joins. So it's completely different. Like you don't, you don't deal with old people. You deal with, with young people who had this Bitcoin like in, in, in 2013 and now they are, they are VCs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. I think, not I think... to be ageist, not to be ageist. <laughs> We mean in the mind, <laughs> open to new ideas. Yeah, I think that's the thing, right? People, irrespective of their ages, I think people in this community actually get it and they want this to be happening in the world. And as people actually building things come to them, they just want to, this is something that they've been thinking for a while, but no one has been doing. Now that we have a doer, you want to, you want to make this happen to the world. I think that's the attitude that people bring to the table, right? So yeah. So fresh thinking, new thinking, and people who get it and want this to be there in the world. I think those are the key traits that people in the VC world have uh, from Web3 perspective. Awesome. Great. Um, thanks a lot, Kevin, Kate, Isan. I don't have any other questions, uh, but it was a pleasure uh, discussing this. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't say that it's actually been two hours. Two hours just flew by, actually. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, uh, joining me and discussing about functional inbox and everything else. Thank you so much oh. for having us, Nanda. Pleasure being here.
It was a pleasure. Yes, thank you, Nanda. Thank and you. thanks again for your support in our community. And uh, you continue on your path to being a power user of our network. <laughs> also, just want to, to mention that our crowdfunding campaign on Indiegogo is still going on for, for the next uh, 20 days. So if anyone wants to see some more materials, we put some videos and content on the Indiegogo campaign page, uh, which they can visit there. Perfect. I'll make sure I put up a link as well down uh, on the team so that uh, people can. Okay. Uh, either you are talking about Tamil, or you are talking Function Land Discord channel, you are talking Tamil. Reply so, you guys might want to add uh, something like Nandri or something just so that like it actually comes from you guys as well. Like just Nandri, I'll maybe ping it here. Nandri? Nandri. Okay. Yeah. Nandri. 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 Nandri, Nanda. All right. Awesome. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. Uh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot.